When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod. Use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Andreas Steno, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We are sending to you live Wednesday, September 7th. On the back of an interesting day, uh, in particular in commodity markets, we've seen a landslide in the oil price over the past couple of hours here. Uh, And today we're actually going to ask the question whether the world is upside down. What will central banks do in response to all of the bailouts that we've uh, seen announced in Europe this week? And to answer that question, together with me, I've invited Darius Dale, the founder of 42 Macro. Darius, it's uh, great to see you again. Likewise, Andreas. Good to see you, man. How are you doing? All good. Um, Darius, let's have a look at the price action today. Um, we've seen a, a material drop in the oil price over the past three, four hours here. What do you make of the price action in commodity space right now? Yeah, so I'd start by saying, uh, great question, because that to me seems to be what's driving the uh, the risk across broader uh, asset markets in terms of the positive response we're seeing in fixed income, and as a function of that, a positive response we're seeing in equities and credit. Um, this move in oil is, is largely technical um, from my perspective, uh, you know, just at least in terms of, you know, you had this sort of, um, I forget what they call the death cross or whatever, <laughs> you know, one of these, I guess, when the 50-day moving average breaks down below the 200-day moving average, you've seen a lot of investors de-risk their exposure um, in terms of taking down the position size or just getting rid of the exposure altogether. Um, in fact, you know, it was something we flagged last week, uh, WTI crude oil specifically broke down to bearish from the perspective of our volatility adjusted uh, momentum signal. Uh, typically what happens in these in these big breakdowns or breakouts, volatility tends to be the leading indicator for price. And so this is another example uh, of the volatility signal, you know, kind of um, break, you know, kind of front running uh, what is very clearly kind of a technically driven sell-off. Is it sustainable? I mean, we've seen OPEC plus come out and try to sort of um, push back against it in terms of trying to stabilize markets. We saw a pretty uh, token supply uh, production uh, cut, targeted production cut uh, a couple of days ago. Clearly, it, it did not work. And so I think, we, I think we're kind of in a phase over the next couple of weeks to see their response. Is, is $80 the right price from their perspective? Or do they want it more close to 90, which is uh, kind of where they initially started uh, targeting some intervention, verbal intervention. So we've seen 
basically politicians across the European continent trying to contain the situation within the electricity and energy sector over the past four to five days with announcements on bailouts. We know that the European Commission will meet up on Friday to discuss the situation and potentially solve it, uh, hopefully solve it, I'd say. Um, but what do you make of the current sort of string of announcement on, on, on bailouts in Europe? Is it something that matters for markets? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so let's play this forward, right? So typically what happens when you have expansionary fiscal policy, you tend to wind up with you know, higher levels of demand, uh, both for, for the private sector. And as a function of that higher level of demand, you wind up with uh, exacerbating supply chains, et cetera, and you wind up with higher inflation. This type of intervention, however, from a fiscal authority perspective, you know, particularly in Europe, we got uh, the new prime minister, Liz Truss, uh, plan to curtail energy prices. There's talks that the European Council to do the same thing. If we start to see that, then what we're going to see, we're going to wind up with, you know, kind of a, a depressing uh, influence over inflation, right? Because we have not seen the full brunt of electricity price hikes um, get pushed to European consumers, either in the UK or across the broader European Union. So at the margin, that would be a positive element because traditionally what happens, right? The fiscal authority eases and has expansionary uh, policy, whereas the monetary authority in these types of regimes tends to have contractionary policy to mop up some of the excess liquidity. And I think uh, on the margin, you could wind up in a scenario relative to current market pricing where both the fiscal authority and the monetary authority are easing at the margin because, again, we're addressing the energy price uh, shock directly. If we look at the uh, current policy mix, so bailouts being uh, announced and presented by, by right about every prime minister in Europe right now, and interest rate, interest rate hikes being on the table uh, from the European Central Bank, from the Bank of England, from Bank of Canada, just again today, from the Federal Reserve. It's, it seems as if the world is sort of upside down compared to the 2010s, doesn't it? I mean, it seems as if the central banks are now the, the tight part of the policy mix while the politicians are bailouting everyone. Percent. I mean, you know, with plenty of other guests on, on this program and other programs on Real Vision have, have come on and talked about this. We have transitioned to an era of fiscal dominance in lieu of monetary dominance. Now, what's driving that transition at the ground root at the, at the first principles level is a, a proliferation of, of sort of, you know, kind of a decline in, in, in working age population uh, participation in the labor force, largely because we've shipped, you know, a lot of the developed markets have shipped their jobs uh, to, to lower cost manufacturing hubs like China, Mexico, et cetera. Um, and then you've also seen a, a blowout of income inequality. Um, not the least of which is being driven by the expansionary monetary policy we saw throughout the 2010s. And so as a function of that, you know, we've seen in the pandemic, the pandemic was very clearly a big lurch forward in this in this process for expansionary fiscal policy. But I would argue, it, you know, at least in the U.S. in particular, it started with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, you know, five years ago. Um, and so we're now in this new era where central banks are no longer sort of, um, you know, the kind of the only game in town, if anything. They have to, to to take out their mop and, and mop up the excess liquidity. But again, I don't know that you know the 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 desire to mop up the excess liquidity will continue to rise at the same pace if, in fact, we do see um, fiscal authorities um, kind of take to, to you know kind of address the energy crisis head on. The European Central Bank will uh, meet tomorrow, um, and I think the consensus is slowly but surely moving towards seventy five basis points among sell side analysts. The market is a bit less certain on the 75 basis points. But given this backdrop of massive bailouts being presented across the European continent, what do you make of the European Central Bank's reaction function in relation to this series of bailouts being presented? 
Well, so to me, I think it's it's less about the, in my opinion, I think it's less about the 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 the, your, the central bank's reaction function and more about the market's reaction function, because this 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 expansion of 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 fiscal uh, of, of fiscal budget deficits effectively, which is what this is going to equate to, has to get capitalized by someone or some entity. <laughs> so used to the ECB expanding its balance sheet, the Fed expanding its balance sheet, and effectively capitalizing you know the European governments and the and the U.S. governments. As a function of that process, but now we're very clearly in a state where, at, at least on the U.S. side, balance sheet is contracting. On the European side, balance sheet is probably, you know, kind of stable, um, if you will, over the next, you know, at least uh, the current outlook is probably for stability. And so it's pushing more of the onus in terms of capitalizing the governments back towards the private sector. Now, that's not the end of the world if you're talking about Europe because it's a current account, uh, so at least for now, <laughs> very nearly. Current account surplus the nation with with excess um, savings on its balance sheet. Uh, the U.S., however, on the other hand, is a is a current account deficit nation again narrowly. We've seen that 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 spread narrow in terms of this terms of trade shock. Uh, but you know we 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 need to capitalize the, the the fiscal authority to the extent we do see an incremental lurch forward in fiscal policy in the U.S., which we are experiencing. Uh, we talked about that over the last few weeks. Uh, we see the student um, student loan debt relief. We're seeing you know things like caps on gas prices, et cetera. Um, there was one more thing, but yeah, there's you know three things the Biden administration has done, um, inclusive of the Inflation Reduction Act, to sort of um, you know basically take up incremental fiscal spending to to effectively offset inflation, which historically is not the smartest idea. True, um, but we, we we've actually seen markets calming down a little bit after the announcements of uh, the bailout packages in in Europe, and I want to bring up a chart. Uh, on the so-called clean spark spread, uh, and now I'm getting thrown into the deep end here because I'm a not an electricity expert, but I've spent most of my week in telcos with power trading desks in Europe because electricity is basically what's driving everything right now in in the European landscape. And what this measures is basically the input uh, spread between the natural gas price and the electricity price that a utility can sell um, forward on. Uh, and the interesting thing here is that the spread between the electricity price in forward terms and the input price of the natural gas used to create the electricity basically blew up uh, throughout last week um, and it went uh, all the way above 400 euros per megawatt hour, uh, which is a level that we've never seen before. And this was the exact spread that triggered this story about 1.5 trillion worth of um, sorry margin calls across the European continent in the energy sector. So we've actually seen a, a sharp retracement in this spread after the um, government stepped in to sort of calm down markets with these bailout announcements. So I think we can sort of take that margin call story at least partly off the table again. It's still bad, but it's not as bad as as it was reported last week. Uh, so quite interesting that we see these um, uh, developments in the European electricity markets. But I also wanted to ask you, Darius, is the electricity market a hot topic in the US as well right now? No, I mean, we still had <laughs> a hot electricity. <laughs> I do have one thing to add, and at the expense of sounding like a complete uninformed fool on the subject matter. I thought when I when I saw the story on the 1.5 trillion in margin calls, that was actually positive. It's like the only time where margin calls are broadly positive because it, what it probably ultimately means is that a lot of traders and speculators who've driven up the price of four gas prices in Europe have to basically cut, you know, close those positions. Yeah. 
about those positions. And I think that's you know, one of the outcrops of that is that, you know, it's just it's it's getting too expensive from a risk budgeting perspective to maintain the, the, the position sizes. So we've seen those positions cut. And as a function of that, the outlook for European energy prices at the margins relative to that to, 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 to that to, to, relative to that condition um, is actually improved. Um, you know, this is something, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, not this specific thing, but, you know, we're picking the, all these different dynamics up in our outcast models for things like European Eurozone CPI. In fact, Brian, I'll just pull up that chart. You know, our model is suggesting that European inflation is likely to peak sometime in September and October timeframe. Um, and that's, you know, relative to sort of the draconian, the worst case scenario, which is we continue to see ongoing um, price appreciation um, in energy and electricity prices, which would have been picked up by our Nowcast model, that's the purple line in the charts. Um, you know, that's that's a better dynamic than I think the the consensus view on Europe, and you talk about this all the time, the consensus view on Europe was that inflation is going to just go through the roof. Europe's going to go through the abyss economically. And I think over the last few weeks, we've gotten enough data points from the perspective of policy and the perspective of price in the markets to tell you that those things are less true. I tend to agree with your assessment, by the way. I think we will have a material spike in the CPI index in Europe over the next one to two months before a sharp retracement low. And that's sort of also what's being indicated by the future pricing right now in, in natural gas space, for example. I also find it interesting that given uh, that Putin actually decided to cut the flows to, to zero in the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, we haven't seen new highs in the European net gas futures, uh, which is interesting because if the flow is already zero, it's kind of impossible to surprise to the downside on, on, on the flow, right? Um, so I think the worst case scenario is more or less priced in by now. Sell the news. I mean, exactly. Yeah. If you, who's buying European net gas today on the view that <laughs> Putin might cut off the, the supplies? The positions were already put on. So that's you know one of these classic dynamics where markets are forward looking and very clearly they priced in already the sort of the furthest left tail of the distribution of outcomes. And I would argue at the margins, you know, we're probably cutting off that tail just based on the policy response. We're gonna take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. If we look at the uh, European Central Bank ahead of tomorrow, I think we can bring up a chart on the pricing uh, of the European Central Bank over the coming uh, couple of uh, years here. Um, the Euripa curve peaks just south of 2.5%. What do you make uh, of a level of 2.5% on the policy rate in sort of comparison to inflation levels close to 10% or even above? Yeah, so there's a couple of things I'll say. Obviously, relative to history, um, that's not that's usually not going to cut it. Historically speaking, you know, when you analyze tightening cycles, you tend to have to get the policy rate above the observed level of inflation, um, you know, in order for to 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 see that big disinflationary process take hold and have it be self-sustaining. Uh, this time might be a little different, though. Famous, you know, last words are you know most dangerous words. <laughs> uh, but if uh, Brian, if you pull up that chart. Uh, slide 98, uh, where we show uh, the ISM manufacturing and services uh, indices. Uh, there's a there's a as a PM there's a sub index within those uh, reports uh, called the percentage of respondents reporting slower supplier delivery times. 
And this is a good proxy for supply chain disruption. So when uh, the chart spikes, that's telling you a very high and large percent of respondents are saying, hey, it's harder to get goods, harder to get services because there are supply chain disruptions. Well, we've basically seen the opposite take place in the most recent months. You know, the, all, for all the talk of supply chain disruptions that we had throughout 2021 and into the early part of this year, they're basically moving in the opposite direction with the same degree of expediency um, that they move to the upside. And so there is some element of inflation that we all understand, or at least most of us should understand by now, that was in fact transitory. And that transitory inflation is receding at the margins and may make you know this sort of European um, inflation story and even the U.S. inflation story uh, look a lot better in the coming months than I think um, you know probably the most ardent bears are willing to admit. If we look at the FX developments over the past uh, three to four months, uh, it's quite clear that the release valve, um, when we have a situation with an en energy crisis in Europe and in Japan, and central banks sort of hesitant to 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 react to it via tighter policy, is sort of the FX channel versus the dollar. We've seen new lows uh, during the day in the pound sterling versus the dollar. I think we need to go back, uh, is it three and a half decades to find as low levels in the cables of the pound sterling versus the dollar. What do you make of the FX development? right now and the spillovers to central bank reaction functions in Europe and in the US. So I mean very clearly what's driving uh the the sort of re, the, the 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 currency market right now it's much bigger than the traditional sort of you know interest rate differential story that's kind of the I would argue like the the, the base case scenario. Right now what's driving the, the FX channel uh largely is this sort of terms of trade shock we're seeing between the US and Europe. I mean, Europe is swinging from, you know, largely if you look at the Eurozone continent and aggregate, you know, very large current account surplus uh, country to, or not country, uh, region or geography or economy rather. Um, and that looks a lot closer to more neutral. Um, and, that, and on the other side of that, that, that reduction, that, that narrowing of the current account surplus, you know, we're having ours, you know, sort of our current account deficit narrow. Um, and that's really what's driving those flows, those, that, that terms of trade shock is really showing up in flows. Um, it's also showing up in the capital count as well. Um, don't forget that the U.S., um, you know, if you look at, you aggregate the last few years, you know, we're, we're tracking it like plus seven, eight trillion dollars in terms of the, the change in our net international investment positioning to the downside, which means we're, at, we're, we're importing all that capital into the US. And obviously, there's been a variety of reasons for why that's happened throughout the pandemic era, not the least of which is, you know, we issued a lot more debt than most people. Um, with, because of the issuance of debt, we had a massive fiscal expansion that turned into a massive outperformance in growth, massive outperformance in, you know, earnings growth, corporate profits, and ultimately massive outperformance in asset markets. And so, you know, all that capital, you know, it's kind of, you know, I would argue, just in terms of, um, the relative performance of indices and the relative valuations of indices is still, you know, sort of trapped here. Um, but obviously, if, if you look forward ahead, maybe six, nine months from now, that that dynamics are likely to reverse once we get towards the lows of the global growth cycle and we start to see some of those flows, uh, you know, abate and, and go in the other direction. In relation to this debate on uh, debt levels in, in in Europe, I wanted to play a soundbite for you. It's uh, from an interview I did with Emil Kalinowski, so um, the host of the Eurodollar University podcast. Uh, by the way, a, a very good podcast. Um, he's talking about the sort of fundamental risks underlying the situation in Europe, um, because Europe basically headed into this energy crisis with very high levels of debt, both privately and uh, public debt. Uh, so let's listen to Emil's point here and get back to that debate. As Jeff and I often talk about on the show, we're not fans of central bank quantitative easing in terms of generating economic activity or inflation. 
We don't believe it creates either. We believe that they create bank reserves that then sit idle on bank balance sheets because the banks think that it is too risky to lend out there. And right now it does seem absolutely too risky to do so. That's why I believe it would take politicians strong-arming these banks, commandeering them, informing them that they must, as a national security issue, as a, an emergency to the cost of living issue, that they must issue the credit and the loans into the private sector. And that's what will get liquidity into the system. Quantitative easing isn't really liquidity for the economy. It's liquidity for the banking system that doesn't want anymore. Mm. If you want liquidity for the economy, you've got to get banks to lend. They won't because it's too risky. The politicians have to step in and guarantee these, the lending. The entire interview uh, between Emil Kalinowski and uh, me will be available uh, today for subscribers on the Real Vision platform. But back to you, Darius. Um, Emil's point is obviously that uh, Europe entered this energy crisis with a massive private debt load already, and that uh, to ensure that banks will keep lending to the economy get through this crisis, the politicians will likely have to underpin the banks by guaranteeing uh, part of uh, parts of this debt load. What do you make of his point that banks actually make the true channel of liquidity to the real economy and central banks don't? So that that is correct. That's accurate. Mm -hmm. And and by the way, I'm a big fan of Emil and, and obviously Jeff Snyder that work with uh, Eurodoll University. You know, the two of them can certainly forget more about, you know, kind of shadow banking and all this, these dynamics, you know, on the way to the bathroom that I'd ever learn. But the one that I will push back and and sort of um on his on kind of one of his key takeaways, which is, you know, like QE doesn't do anything, it doesn't create liquidity. It actually does, if you think about it through the sort of portfolio channel effect, right? When the Q, when we do quantitative easing, we're taking debt securities out of the private market and leaving investors with the end investors with cash. And so in order to, you know, that cash, if, if investors don't want to sit there in cash because rates are zero, usually when the Fed's doing QER or negative, for instance, for the ECB, then investors wind up taking more duration risk. They wind up taking more credit risk. Or if you think about it in terms of private equity or venture capital, they wind up taking more liquidity risk. And so it does through the shadow banking sector create liquidity for the real economy is just not being observed on bank balance sheets, which is one of the reasons why if you look at the share of, of total private non-financial sector debt on bank balance sheet in the US and Europe in particular, you know, we're at multi-decade lows in the US around 32% and around, I think it was somewhere around like 54% in Europe. You know, the growth of the shadow banking sector has certainly um, been one of the offshoots of this quantitative easing era. I um, asked Emil the question whether it's possible to find um, a region in the world with low private debt loads, uh, if you sort of fear the scenario of too high debt loads privately held. Um, do you have an answer to that? Because it's quite tricky to find a good region in, in, in the sense of finding a region with a very low debt load. This is something I've studied extensively throughout my career. Um, high and low doesn't necessarily tell you much from a predictive standpoint. It's the change in the debt, the speed of the change rather. So one thing we look at um, is the credit gap measure, uh, which is the change in the private non-financial sector credit to GDP ratio on a five-year or three-year Z-score basis. Five-year for certain economies works better, three-year for other economies that are more cyclical. Um, you know, whenever you get to a scenario where that, you know, that metric is somewhere, you know, close to a two sigma event. Typically, what happens is you, you tend to enter a deleveraging cycle on the other side of that. It doesn't have to happen, you know, overnight. 
But, you know, if you look for 12, 18 months from, you know, two sigma uh, threshold uh, in that statistic, um, you know, you tend to wind up in a deleveraging cycle, potentially a recession, usually a recession. Um, we're not there yet in terms of, you know, U.S. private non-financial sector debt, namely because the household sector balance sheet has really not grown in terms of the total amount of leverage as a share of GDP or share of income in, in recent years. Um, corporate sector balance sheet has, has really grown. But generally speaking, part of one of the reasons the corporate sector balance sheet has grown from a leverage perspective, at least here in the U.S., I'm speaking to the U.S. specifically, is because corporates took advantage of very low interest rates in 2020 and basically issued a crap ton of debt at you know historic lows and historic durations. And so I'm not so sure that the the, the kind of that the threshold that's currently being breached on the corporate sector is as draconian as it might otherwise imply. Um, you know, Europe's a little bit less. Um, Certainly, I don't know. I don't know if the composition of Europe off the top of my head, but I do know that um, from an aggregate perspective, we're still not breaching those kinds of levels in Europe either. So I would argue that, you know, just in terms of like needing to see a deleveraging cycle born out of all this tightening, uh, that's not necessarily the modal outcome. The modal outcome, however, is we should likely continue to slow. And I think that's pretty, pretty clear across a lot of the economic statistics. If we look at a live assessment of the global economy, you know, you've brought a chart with you on the manufacturing PMIs and the service PMIs across the globe. So why don't you uh, speak to the point of the slowdown that we see in various PMI measures across the globe? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's pretty clear that, you know, if the U.S. is continuing to outperform uh, economically, both in manufacturing and services. Um, you know, the one thing I call out is that, you know, it's very clear that that Europe is is significantly underperforming. And so it, it tells you that, you know, the sort of, um, you know, the, the R star, like the neutral interest rate or, you know, because again, the markets are pricing in, the policy tighten. It's more about how money markets price in, bond markets price in, these dynamics, you know, credit markets in terms of credit spreads are priced in these dynamics. And we're already seeing that way on European growth. At the same time, we're having obviously a energy driven terms of trade shock and a, and a, and a, and a reduction in output born out of, you know, just too high electricity prices. That should continue. We're going to continue to see growth slow in, 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 in Europe. I have no clue on China, given the context of zero COVID. I think if you remove zero COVID, you know, China, I wouldn't necessarily say the Chinese economy is a ball underwater because we have not seen the kind of easing cycle that we traditionally have seen, either monetary or fiscal, in order to sort of, you know, really create a sustained bout of reflation in the Chinese economy. But at the margin, we have eased a considerable amount um, in recent in recent uh, quarters. If you look at the the you know decline in three months shy border over the last kind of six to nine months, if you look at the you know decline in the Chinese yuan, um, particularly over the last two months, now that's kind of starting to reverse, particularly because the Chinese yuan is actually getting to uh, getting to this sort of I don't want to say imaginary, but this kind of all important seven threshold in terms of the USD uh, CNY rate. And so as a function of that, the Chinese uh, authorities, the PBOC, is really sort of um, uh, guiding the reference rate on the FX uh, to be much stronger than what the market is expecting, because I think they're trying to defend and put a floor on the currency. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Good point, uh, Darius. I, I mean, we talk a lot about the U.S. economy, the Federal Reserve, and uh, currently also about the European economy as a consequence of the energy crisis. Uh, but we tend to forget to talk about the development in emerging markets. Uh, so when you look at the PMIs across the emerging market space, what's the signal being sent by the emerging market uh, economies right now? So don't forget that a lot of the EM economy, so it's the, better than you would expect just given the strength in the dollar and the, and the Fed's policy tightening regime. Part of the reason I myself personally have been largely ignoring emerging markets because history shows when the Fed is in a tightening cycle and the global growth cycle is, is pointing downward, you know, EM tends to just be a higher beta way to lose money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, generally speaking, it's like just, you know, if you, at best, those are short ideas. At worst, just do nothing and 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 wait for, for, for you know, sunnier days ahead. Um, so I, I think that's still the story with EM, largely until we get to a, uh, you know, until the market is ready to truly price in an inflection in the dollar liquidity cycle, which itself will be born out of, you know, you know, the Fed or investors receiving clear and confirming evidence that inflation is getting under control, uh, which may come as soon as next Tuesday, by the way, or certainly by the, you know, uh, we'll have a pretty clear indication on that on October 13th when we get the September uh, CPI report. You know, the markets may be ready to start to price that in. Or it may be the case that the markets are going to be have to deal with this current policy mix, which I think is still the modal outcome. Not the modal outcome. I still think the base case scenario, at least from a dollar liquidity standpoint, is Fed gets the target of the Fed funds rate to 375 or 4, sits on that for all of next year. We feel we do the entire brunt of quantitative tightening. That sounds extremely negative when you say all those things back to back to back. But one thing I would argue is that if 375 or 4 is not as restrictive in this sort of new highly capitalized economy from a dollar liquidity standpoint, if that's not nearly that restrictive, then we're probably not going to go in recession. If we don't go in a recession, then investors are going to, you know, feel comfortable taking more risk, uh, either duration or credit risk. And so you could see a pretty significant drain in the reverse repo facility balance to offset that quantitative tightening. So it's a it's a tricky road ahead, man. It's a few months, uh, like a month ago, I said, you know, this back the last time we were crossing four thousand to the upside. I said. When I made that comment, I said, look, we could be at 4,000 by year end 2023, like in that scenario, <laughs> like, and have chopped everyone up to shreds between now and then. Because again, I don't necessarily at this particular juncture see very clear runway to the upside or very clear runway to the downside. Although again, based on next uh, Tuesday's uh, inflation report, and certainly by uh, the September report we're going to get on October 13th, I will have a, a much cleaner read on what to do. We have time for a couple of questions from the audience, Darius. Uh, we've got a question from Pierce on uh, on YouTube, um, and he's asking us uh, whether it should be seen as a positive or a negative for the local markets in Europe and in the UK um, that we see these big bailouts being announced. So is it a positive or a negative for the local currency when we see bailouts of plus 5% of the GDP? Good question. Bailouts are positive. That, that, that's the history shows that from an asset market perspective. You tend to like markets love bailouts. <laughs> what the what those what those programs effectively equate to is a positive shock to growth channeled through a negative shock to inflation. You know, certainly relative to the expectations out there. Um, so that they are positive. I mean, I would I wouldn't fight, you know, the fiscal authority, you know, kind of, you know, they're effectively, you know, nationalizing, you know, the the the, the costs of energy in, in Europe. That's a that's a positive development if you think about it from the perspective of the economic output and also the perspective of asset markets. So um, the one thing I will say that's negative on the other side of that is that's who's financing this stuff. China and Russia don't want our paper anymore. So we, the private sector, have to capitalize this. And we, the private sector, demand higher interest rates 
in order to take down um, these incremental uh, you know moves higher in in in, in, uh, in budget deficits. So that's partially what's what's probably driving uh, rates higher across the board because the whole world is starting to wake up to the world where fiscal authorities are, are comfortable financing a lot of this stuff. We have a question from Bo. Um, he's asking you, uh, in a global energy crisis where few of the supply transport issues with crude have been resolved, what does a 33% drop in the price of crude over a three-month period say to you, Darius? It's, it's very positive. So, I mean, I just did the math on this before the show. So, if you just look at the U.S., um, let's also with the U.S., so the gasoline prices, because that's what matters to the CPI, you know, gasoline prices are down, if you look at it on a monthly average basis, down 13% in August versus only being down 8% in July, right? So like that, that's a, we we have a bigger decline in gas prices in August than we observed in July. And don't forget in the month of July, we had 0% inflation, according to our president, which was technically true if you look on a month over month uh, basis. So um, it's obviously positive, you know, certainly in the context of, um, you know, investor positioning on the buy side being quite light, and the kind of general consensus narrative, you know, being that inflation is a problem and it's going to remain a problem for a long period of time. You know, if we continue to see these developments from an energy market perspective and those developments further proliferate through the, um, you know, through the more core inflationary channels, you know, we're going to be having a very different conversation about asset markets, you know, in a couple of months from now. Um, so I think that's I put that on everybody's radar. You know, I've made it my trademark to always conclude the daily briefing with a meme, Darius. Um, and I think we need a meme on the global central bank situation today. So, I mean, right about every central bank is hiking interest rates. The ECB will hike interest rates by either 50 or 75 basis points tomorrow. But the cat, or rather the dove left, is still back of Japan. We're doing yield curve control. Who cares, right? Um, everybody else is hiking interest rates. So ultimately, here, what do you make of Bank of Japan in this setting? Look, they, they, they I don't know. Kuroda just is he playing chess? Playing chess, right? In fact, uh, Brian, I got the chart of Japanese CPI. So you know, one thing we do. Um, consistent with our, our forecasting process. We're forecasting growth, forecasting inflation in order to figure out what grid regime, the sequence of grid regimes that invest uh, different economies are going to be in. And, you know, Japanese, he's gotten his inflation if you turn to look at, you know, going past the 2% target. But if you look at our forecast, you know, Japanese inflation is likely to peak kind of in mid to late Q4 and really roll over pretty sharply from there. And so, you know, it's, you know, if under that scenario, if you're talking about would it have been a smart decision for Governor Kuroda to pull back on 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 on, on sort of a yield curve control, um, you know, at any point in time this year, you know, asking that question 12, 18 months from now, the answer would have been no, because we are basically just going to round trip on inflation, you know, by the end of next year. So um, probably playing chess <laughs> relative to, to, to <laughs> we're banging our heads on the table every day, trying to squeak out a few basis points of return uh, while we are all playing checkers. But, you know, it is what it is. I mean, this this policy divergence is is quite historic. I mean, I don't know what the, the 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 you know there is no there's no cap to the dollar right like if you think about term shock yield curve control in Japan Fed remaining tight you know at least at least for now in terms of the inflation uh, dynamics where's the dollar there's a peak in the dollar I mean you got milkman on your podcast um, this was a recent episode excellent episode as they tend to always be you know I think he's him and I see very similarly we have a very similar framework in terms of thinking about currency risk and I, I definitely agree with the dollar bear case next year but how in the hell do you stop this dollar bull market today over the mm. and i think that's that's going to be something that's hard for for markets to push back against yeah 
And uh, honestly, right now, it feels like peeing against the wind if you go against the dollar trend, right? So uh, I, I, I tried to dip my toes into a long euro versus dollar trade uh, a few weeks back, didn't succeed. So um, I guess we're back to just trading the long dollar story for now, at least until this energy crisis is resolved. Darius, it, uh, it was once again a great pleasure to host you at the uh, Real Vision Daily Briefing. Thanks for joining. Always a pleasure, my friend. Catch you next week. Yeah, catch you next week. And uh, to the audience out there, thank you for watching again today. Uh, we will be back tomorrow with all of the action surrounding the uh, meeting in the European Central Bank. So I'll be joined by Jared Dillian uh, tomorrow afternoon. So uh, see you tomorrow. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.